one year, I kind of got an idea. You know, I almost tried trap. I like to trap. I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money hand over fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. That's me preferable. This is northern Michigan. This is what you do. Trappers love being trappers in a positive light. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Perfect and Game magazine. The structure from Perigo Gorman. Perg Lennon's articles, the Perg Lennon ads to information, trapping radios. We are trappers on ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. Alright, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet because we're working ahead of time to build big trapping. If you got variables to send the judge, you got bog trap. They start talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down bottom. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't get them better. Trying to set predator traps and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like a sheer. You better edit this part out. Yeah, it was better. Back in the fur shed. This is Trapping Today. I'm Jeremiah Wood. Thanks for listening in. We're brought to you by Cots Brothers Lures. K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S. Trap smarter, work harder, enjoy the success that follows. Cotsboros has a full line of trapping supplies, everything you need to get started on the trap line. Go to Cotsboros.com. Onyx Maps, turn your phone into a GPS on the trap line. Mark trap locations, run tracks, check out the latest aerial imagery, and get landowner information. And Moyle Mink and Tannery, what are you going to do with your fur this year? Don't make the mistake I did. Preserve those memories least if you're just starting out send off the first few animals of each species you catch to get tanned preserve those memories and uh, have a few hang on the wall conversation starters moil making tannery are the professionals they will get your fur done properly at a very reasonable price and timeline moil.net m-o-y-l-e use their customer portal to um, to place your order and pay for it and get that process started and that interview we had last week with Ryan from Moyle Mink was uh, really well received. I enjoyed that a lot, and I learned a lot, and I was surprised at how many other people said uh, they were surprised at how much they learned. Uh, and the tanning process is much more in-depth and complex than maybe a lot of us gave it credit for. Makes you think a little bit about trying to tan some of your own fur, uh, but uh, obviously it can be done, um, but but it takes a lot of experience. So... Um, I'm just sitting here, uh, middle of February, soaking up the last little rays of sunshine. Um, it's been uh, somewhat cold and snowy here, but that's to be expected in northern Maine. And uh, most of the trapping is pretty much done right now. It's been done for a little while, but we get a little bit of under ice beaver trapping. Might have to get into here uh, pretty soon, and maybe we'll do our our uh, normal wintertime under ice beaver talk at some point. But um, Tonight's episode is a little bit of trapping information from the southern United States, but it's applicable to all trappers. But I've been wanting to get Kirk DeKalb on the show for quite some time. Now, about 11 years ago, back in 2010, I reviewed a DVD that had come out uh, that featured Kirk. It was called Trapping Tales, and it followed him around uh, on for about a week on his beaver line. 
and he just absolutely was stacking up the beavers there in Georgia. He he was an animal damage control trapper there, uh, trapped for bounty. He was consistently catching over a thousand beavers a year. Pretty amazing stuff, and you can learn a lot in the process of catching a thousand beavers. So we're going to talk tonight a little bit about Kirk's background and. Uh, one of the discoveries that he came across in his trapping career and how it kind of changed the way that he thought about traps in general and the effectiveness of different traps. It, it's really, a, it, to me, it's mind-blowing. But we'll take care of a, one or two other orders of business before we get started with that. And it's fitting just after the interview with Moyle Mink. I got my furs back from Moyle way ahead of expected time. But like Ryan said, depending on when you send them, you know, if you send in January, there's a good chance that you're going to get your furs back a lot sooner than if you send in April. Um, so I have uh, put up some tanned fur on the Trapping Today store. So trappingtodaystore.com. And I have, let's see, of course, that's where you can get the Mustela t-shirt, uh, prized Mustelids of the North American Trapper that has been very popular. You can find uh, my books, uh, Walter Arnold, Main Trapper, and Fur Profit. Got another book in the pipeline, and I'm working on another one as well. So those will be something to keep an eye on as well. Um, I have, for tanned furs, I've put together um, some some of the... Okay, I just had to double-check make sure I had everything on there. Um, so I don't have all of my furs there. I just took a selection of certain items, and a lot of... I sent a few out to Josh up in Fairbanks to work on some projects that he's got going on there. Actually, uh, if he's making a fur hat for you, you might get one of my fishers in that fur hat. Um, but but a few went there. There's a few that I kept that I'm, I have some ideas. I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with them yet, but got some ideas and, and kind of working through that a little bit. Uh, there's one tan beaver pelt on there. It's beautiful absolutely beautiful pelt if you're looking for one and uh, I have some coyotes uh, I got four three or four coyotes I got three red fox three otters and a pile of martin I get 22 martin and I split the martin up into a couple of groups these the larger ones I, I thought were they, they make better wall hangers but like a lot of our martin they're just so small that especially as you get up toward the neck part of them um, they, on the smaller ones, they don't really look as good hanging from the wall because they kind of just, I don't know, they get, they get kind of collapse on themselves a little bit. So they're, you know, cause they're such a small pelt, they don't lay flat as easily. So I separated those out and those, those, uh, they're still large, but the, those smaller larges are going to be more of, uh, I would recommend them more for like, if you have some project that you're working on, you want to. A line a jacket or you want to do something with some some mitts or a hat they make a great hat they, they look awesome on a hat and they'd be super warm uh, you can you can get those for a little better price but anyway I've got all that up there trappingtodaystore.com so check it out even if you don't have immediate plans to buy any tan furs maybe you just want to browse and see some pictures and check out what those look like some examples of our northern Maine fur and I've got, what else we got? Um, we've still got the lure, and we've got a few other items there. So, yeah, that's all That's all available. 
The next book that's coming out is going to be The Manly Hardy, Fall Fur Hunt in Maine. And that's uh, going to be a little over 100 pages. So it's a pretty short read. It's fascinating stuff. If you haven't uh, seen it before, I think you're going to be kind of blown away by some of the methods and some of the things those guys did back in the 1800s. It's the story of an 1859 trapping trip to a remote area of northern Maine, two young guys. And uh, they spent two months out there trapping for Martin and Fisher and beaver, otter, mink, and uh, and bear. And they caught quite a lot of fur. They actually caught almost all their Martin in deadfall traps that they built uh, out there in the woods. Really cool stuff. They built a cabin. Just, yeah, it, it's awesome. So um, I've got that a sample from the printer coming soon just to make sure everything's formatted right and it looks good. But I'm going to make that available, and that's not going to be a very expensive book because it's it's fairly short, and it didn't take me a whole heck of a lot of time relative to some of the other books. So I don't mind. Um, I'm going to sell that pretty pretty reasonably so people can get their hands on it. Again, it's uh, it's it was written in the early 1900s, and so it, it's in public domain. Anybody can You can pull it up online and read a PDF copy of it if you want, but this is going to be much nicer to have a physical copy in your hands to to read and and a much easier format to look look at. So the other book that I want to mention is the book we're going to talk about tonight uh, indirectly, but written by Kirk DeKalb. That's D-E-K-A-L-B, trapper from Georgia. It's called An Outdoorsman's Greatest Discovery for the 21st Century, The Real Reasons Animals Are Detecting Your Sets and Devices. I'd never really considered this. Um, It's something that just... Of all the things that we think about, you know, why, why did this animal avoid my set? Um, why did it dig up my, why did this fox or coyote dig up my foothold trap? Well, either it was, they smelled something there, or in a lot of cases, I think, um, at least in my experience, the trap wasn't bedded properly and it stepped in on the edge of the trap and it felt it move. And so it dug that up, um. But there are a lot of situations that we just can't seem to be able to explain why they avoid that. Um, could it be the maybe the uh, the wind current and the scent dispersal around the set and they're coming in from a different angle? Yes, it could be that. Uh, it could be a number of different things. But I, I, in the process as a trapper, trying to be intuitive and trying to think about all the possibilities that are taking place, that influence what an animal does. The the magnetic field emitted from the steel of a trap never crossed my mind. Kirk kind of stumbled upon this idea based on seeing some very interesting patterns in, in his experiences where certain traps were outperforming others by a wide margin. And he couldn't figure it out. He thought it was something to do with the trigger mechanism and uh, the openness of the trap and all that. But it, things just weren't quite adding up. And somehow he read somewhere about how different shapes uh, are conducive to different magnetic fields. And he decided to go ahead and start testing the magnetic fields around the uh, the different traps that he used. 
And sure enough, it turned out that the traps that were more effective had a lower magnetic field, uh, and the traps that that were not being not very affected effective at catching animals had a higher magnetic field. So he hypothesized that this uh, the strength of the magnetic field was uh, for some animals causing them to uh, avoid avoid or enter traps depending on the situation. So it, this is for some people they might think this is hocus pocus and it doesn't make any sense. However, I and, and I was a little bit skeptical at first. I I will say that there are, Kirk mentions there are differences depending on where you are in in uh, on the Earth. Uh, in further north latitudes, the magnetic difference is lesser. So you're going to have less of an impact uh, by having a certain magnetic field around a, a particular trap if you're up in Maine uh, than you would see if you're down in Georgia. And so, of course, the guy from Georgia, you would expect to be able to see these differences. And Kirk, I think he said he trapped over 16,000 beavers in, in uh, 20 years. And so he, he had the chance to see a lot of situations and see a lot of patterns. Um, and and he, toward the end, he started really testing this out. So one thing that we do know is uh, mammals have this um, substance called cryptochrome. And I'm going to pull this up on Wikipedia so I can get a proper definition without stumbling over my words too much. Cryptochromes are a class of flavoproteins found in plants and animals that are sensitive to blue light. They are involved in the circadian rhythms and the sensing of magnetic fields in a number of species. And let's get into just a little more detail on the, the magneto, magnetoreception portion of the, the use of cryptochrome. Magnetoreception is a sense which allows an organism to detect a magnetic field to perceive direction, altitude, or location. Experimental data suggests that cryptochromes in the photoreceptor neurons of birds' eyes are involved in magnetic orientation during migration. Cryptochromes are also thought to be essential for the light-dependent ability of Drosophila to sense magnetic fields. Magnetic fields were once reported to affect cryptochromes also in certain plants. Growth behaviors seem to be affected by magnetic fields in the presence of blue but not red light. Nevertheless, these results have later turned out to be irreproducible under strictly controlled conditions in another laboratory, suggesting that plant cryptochromes do not respond to magnetic fields. Uh, cryptochrome forms a pair of radicals of correlated spins when exposed to blue light, blah, 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 and then it gets really uh, uh, a little bit over my head in terms of, of the whole process. But basically, we know that birds sense... Um, use magnetic field for migration. We've known that for a very long time. But the the presence of this in other mammals, uh, in, in other animals and mammals, is something that we we don't really know a whole lot about. So it, it could be something that, I, I always think about this in terms of 50 years ago, you know, we look back and there's things that we know now that we think, man, we were pretty dumb back then. How did we not have that figured out? Well, you know, this is something that maybe 50 years from now, people are going to look back and say, well, why didn't those trappers consider that the, the these magnetic fields and the cryptochrome reception and all this stuff and, and how they made their traps and how they did this and that? And Man, they 
you can just pull out your phone. Well, you can do it today. You can pull out your phone and check the uh, magnetic field with an app on your phone uh, with mo for most phones. Uh, so it, it's, it's a fascinating topic. It's something that I think w will really could potentially open a lot of people's eyes in terms of uh, maybe being able to to add another factor to try to figure out what's going on on your trap line, especially you guys that are further south. I think it would be awesome if you are, you know, if you if you got a pretty big trap line, you got a lot of sets, and you can test this out. You got an iPhone, and you can pull up, uh, you can find uh, an app that will convert your phone into a magnetometer to measure the negative positive ions. Um, and anything around you, it's it's so simple to do. And do this on different traps and see, keep some notes and see if there is a correlation between your effectiveness and the magnetic field uh, around those traps. Uh, I think it would be an interesting thing to explore. And whether or not you're convinced that this is a factor in uh, uh, catching fur bears, it's certainly a, an eye-opening idea to to look into and to pursue. But that's enough of me talking. Let's get into the conversation with Kirk, and uh, we'll talk about his background, some of his experience, and how he stumbled onto all these ideas. Okay, Kirk DeKalb from Georgia. It's great to have you on. Thank you. Um, so a lot of the older trappers who have been around for a little while will recognize your name. Maybe some of the younger guys, uh, uh, not so much, but... Um, you have been quite an accomplished trapper. I think if, if I remember right, in your heyday, you were averaging over a thousand beaver a year. Is that right? No, a thousand beavers uh, over a over a three month period of time. <laughs> that's that's some pretty impressive numbers. Um, so maybe you could give us a little bit of uh, brief background on how you got started trapping and how you developed it into a career. Well, it really is. As far as uh, how I got started, I kind of was pushed into it. Uh, I uh, had a situation where I had business partners that uh, uh, forced me out. I had a situation where I needed to support my family, and I had to come up with ways to do it. And uh, one of the ways was I learned that there was a bounty on beavers in the adjoining county and the county also that I lived. They just started it. And uh, so I bought three traps and um, caught 17 beavers the first week that I trapped. And I, I just had a lot of confidence and I went and bought $800 worth of traps. I'm not sure exactly how many traps that was, but I bought $800 worth of traps. And uh, I ended up that year uh, catching 1,200 beavers in over a 14 month period of time in the county. And uh, after that, I, the next year I couldn't couldn't catch. I didn't have catch, but about 300, 350. Really. Um, the difference being that the in the county that I trapped, the uh, uh, the anybody could it, with a trapping license could uh, catch beavers for the county for that bounty. I was the only one. After a period of a year, I caught so many beavers. The county administrator approached me. Uh, that he wanted me to trap on the right-of-ways and would help me to increase my um, places that I could go because I would be related and reflected on by the uh, county, but you know, could be sent there by the county itself. Mm -hmm. uh, his name was Marion Hay. He's still alive now. He's got cancer in remission, but he's uh, he was the only county administrator out of the eight or nine counties that I worked in over a period of time 
that actually rode with me and uh, worked with me on it. He get me started and keep me going. He actually, if I turned in a beaver that day, they would pay me that day. No kidding. They, want, they, they wanted me to be out there doing as much as I could do. Yeah. Uh, the uh, county that I live in, where he was the administrator, has always had a good administration and a very, very good roads department. Uh, the uh, roads public works officer, the head of that with the roads has always been a very accomplished person. And uh, there's a lady named Wanda Purvis that is the uh, county she answers the phone and directs the men like that where they go according to the, what the road supervisor wants and she she's uh, been with the county now for over 20 years and uh, is just is a tremendous person to uh, to expedite anything that the county does including whatever i did and like that and it all, always has been that way over the last 20 years and so were you operating as uh, an employee of the county or on a contract no, basis? No, I got, I, got, I got strictly got paid by the uh, um, by the beaver, how many I call oh, okay. it. Okay, strictly a numbers and, deal then. Yeah, and uh, I came in at an ideal time. that they had At the time I started, I had over 30 locations that I could go to that the county had problems with. They, they At that time, that was years ago, were spending uh, a little over a quarter of a million dollars a year on road repair and stuff that the beavers had done. Wow. And it was, it was really important to them uh, to, you know, get it taken care of. And, and we really did. It was, it was dramatic how, how much it, uh, change it made. And then what happened, the county below me, which was Thomas County, had me come down there and trap. And then Mitchell County, which is the county west of me, had me come. And then Worth County, which is the county north, had me come. And then north of that was uh, Turner County. And then Lee County had me come into it, and I ended up trapping for the county and, and, and on, I think, 26 locations, or 26 plantations uh, over the period of years that I trapped. Okay, so so that was how you were able to maintain those numbers is by, by spreading out and increasing the area that you trapped. I kept, I kept going in different areas. Yeah. And um, one of the things, I'm, uh, if you, you can always tell who caught, how I was at, I've got Parkinson's and so it's hard to speak sometimes. Yeah, no problem. Uh, the, um, I'm, what I wanted to say is I, I've never mentioned it anywhere that I know of and to the public, but um, if you want to know, if a guy tells you that he catches a thousand beavers a, a year or 1200 beavers a year, the way you can really verify that he does that is he's going to have to have a way to get rid of those beavers. <laughs> <laughs> and if he has to take them to a landfill or if he says he chunks them, he doesn't catch 11 to 1,500. I caught 1,629 one year. But um, he doesn't catch over 1,000 beavers a year because there's, you can't do that. And what we did, and I don't know whether it's legal now or not, but what we did was I had a, a, a friend of mine had a backhoe, and I'd pay him $250. He'd come out and dig me six big holes on my farm, and I had a Kubota tractor that I could cover the animals up with once they were thrown in the pit. And another thing that we did, uh, what we do is we drive in the morning before daylight to wherever we, I was gonna trap. And then I would uh, follow my trap line as far as I could go and then I'd drive home in the dark. And I would unload my beavers in the dark. Uh, and we didn't, the first few years, the fur prices were so low that I didn't skin the beavers. I, did, I made more money catching them than I did skinning them. Mm -hmm. as, it, as we got into it, 
my son, when he turned 16, the fur prices had increased. When he was in college, the beavers were bringing $16 a piece for green-skinned beavers. And um, he skinned, one year he skinned over 1,200 beavers. And that was all two-year-old, two to three-year-old beavers that he got it, that I caught and that he caught that, those, that year. Yeah. And he paid his way through college trapping beavers. That's amazing. You, not many people can say that these days. Uh, almost nobody can say that these days. <laughs> but the whole key to the whole thing was uh, I memorized that we didn't have uh, cell phones when I first got started. And we didn't have uh, where you could tell the um, – we didn't have uh, – Trying to say the like GPS mapping and stuff. We didn't have we didn't have GPS. So what I did was, is I would memorize the map of the counties where I worked, so that I could with, go wherever I wanted to go in the county after where they told me where to go without having to look at a map. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's what I did. And then I had a, a real good facility at the time to handle the uh, animals like that, to skin them and take place of them and get rid of them. If I had gone to a landfill and unloaded my beavers in a landfill. I would have lost anywhere from an hour to two hours a day in, in five days, six days a week. So that adds up to uh, over a day's work that you lose out on, maybe two days work that you lose on out on because you have to have a place to get rid of your animals. Some days I'd have 20, 20 beavers and otters in the back of the truck or more. Yeah. If you have the, I go to 150 to 175 sets a day. Most of them were conibears bears at the time. As we got into the warmer weather, I would use more footholds and snares. And uh, actually, before I started making traps, I actually owned about 30, 35 uh, cage traps for beavers of different uh, makers. But they weren't near the quality and didn't have the ability that they do now with the exception of the coral trap. The coral trap is, some, is a trap that's an exceptional trap in itself. And it's limited in what it can do just like any other trap is. But every trapper should probably have a coral trap, beaver trap, if he's going to do any amount of nuisance control. Yeah. Um, was there? Why did you? Uh, why did you start using cage traps? Was there a specific reason? Well, one of the reasons in the summertime, I, or the our weather down here is really warm, and if you catch a, a beaver, or an otter for that matter, on um, and, and the water is real warm and you don't get to him very quick, he'll get to stinking and it's just not good. And if you get him in a cage trap, he can be in there all day or whatever. And by the time you get to him, as long as he's not in the sun, yeah. uh, you, you, you don't have a problem. But one of the biggest things was all the plantations, um, you almost couldn't get access to a plantation if you had used regular footholds or conibears. Kind of they were scared of them. Really? So if, if you had, uh, if you could say that you could use cage traps, it made a, a real big difference and like that as to what uh, access that you had the ability to, to do. Huh, well, that's interesting. They, so that even though they were set in the water, people just didn't quite understand how those traps worked. That's right. That's right. Out of all the years that I trapped and out of the over 16,000 beavers that I caught, I think there was only one or two dogs that I actually killed. Uh, and they were all dogs that uh, were wild dogs or varmints and they were over a mile away from any homes or whatever. And they just happened to be, like looking, at, for example, the, the first one that I caught that ended up dying or whatever, it was on a drown bag or a uh, beaver. And he had been killing the beavers out of my sets and the snares and like that. Okay. And he just, he just, and I learned from him and that sounds, sounds crazy, but you learn from your mistakes. 
I made sure that whenever I trapped an area, what I even thought that there might be a chance of catching a dog, I made sure that my scent and lure was set three or four feet up on the bank so that the dog working the trap or working the set wouldn't get caught in the foothold trap. So even if he stepped his feet, it'd be hard for him to step his feet down in the water to get caught. Yeah. So the chances, if you did the not math and like that at all, all the scents that I had would be less than one-tenth of a percent of the chance of even catching an animal, a dog, for that matter. But yeah. I was real careful in what I did there. But the cage trapping did open up new access to, to different areas. Yeah, it, it made a real big difference. Um, part of the thing was, too, the uh, limitations that we had. You, you have to set a snare and a, a uh, conibear bear trap within 10 feet of the water here. But the cage trap, uh, you, you we've got big irrigation ponds and like that. That's one reason why the uh, beavers are so prevalent here or whatever is that there's an irrigation pond every quarter mile just about okay and what it does is it allows you to set the trap up on the run up the up on the land or whatever and catch the animal without being down in the water for that matter and and you were able to you found that you were you could be more successful in certain cases by doing that by getting up on the land well sometimes sometimes the drop off would be so great that you couldn't set a there was no place to set a foothold or you oh, couldn't okay. there was no prevalent run that you could set a conibear without the beaver being afraid of it or whatever. For some reason, although I know the reason now, but at the time, for some reason, some of the traps they didn't want to go into because of the, uh, at first I thought it was because it wasn't open or whatever, but it turned out it was a magnetic field they were sensing, the, the difference between the induction of the earth and the, uh, um, as, as the animal went into the trap. Yeah, so now that, since you mentioned that, um, th this is some pretty fascinating stuff. Uh, and, and I did, read your new your new book uh, an outdoorsman's greatest discovery the real reasons animals are detecting your sets and devices and to me for somebody that is observant and catches as many animals as you have you had to be seeing some very interesting patterns and learning over time uh how how did you come upon this discovery this is some pretty fascinating stuff well, the biggest way that I came up with it, there was a trapper down in Louisiana that had some of my traps and some of the other traps that were wire trigger traps. And he was catching three to four times more animals on land sets, which he, he was catching otters and some of them uh, live. And um, he, he, he was telling me that when he, when he bought my traps, he said he was catching three to four times more animals in the sets in my traps than he was the other traps. And then that got me thinking as to why would that be? And I thought, well, it was because it was more open to travel us. Then I had a, another customer in uh, Washington state that told me basically the same thing and told me that he didn't tell anybody of using my traps because he didn't want his competition to be able to catch the animals. He wanted to be able to go in and out catch his competition in the other areas that he was trapping. Yeah. And, and I didn't think anything about it. I thought it was just because the trap was more open. And then, uh, I, uh, uh, I got to making more traps and like that, and I got to thinking about the, the uh, hex suit and the, that there might be something there with a hex suit. And I just got to read more and more and got to thinking. And then one day I I, uh, I, I noticed one of the traps that I was using, I wouldn't catch any animals in it much. I, and another trap that I was using that I made, these are all traps that I made, one trap that somebody else had made, but it was under my design as far as my mechanism goes. Uh, I was catching four or five times more animals in the trap I made than that trap. 
So uh, I got to talking to uh, engineers from the co-op, local co-op and the adjoining county co-op. My father's an engineer, my son's an engineer, my brother-in-law's an engineer, and I just got to talking to people and got to thinking and I um, got an iPhone and turned my iPhone into a magnetometer. Uh, actually had a friend of mine, a biologist, and we were discussing it and we turned his phone into a magnetometer to an app and we tested the traps that I was catching the most animals with, and they all had a low magnetic field going through the trap. Uh, so I thought, well, golly, that's gotta be what it is. And sure enough, uh, how I really found out was I got to reading about uh, pyramid traps, and uh, or a pyramid, not a pyramid trap, pyramid, and how a pyramid would have a reduction of the ions in the bottom of the, or going through the pyramid, and you could actually store food and stuff in the pyramid and it wouldn't de decay as quickly as, as it would if it was positive ions going through the, the storage area that you were trapping or that you were using. And so I just put two and two together and figured it out that it was the negative ions that were moving through the trap that were increasing the animal because it's causing a calming effect and the animal would go into the trap. So, so your friend that was a biologist kind of suggested that maybe the animals could sense that magnetic field no he he didn't really he he was up here deer hunting like he normally does every year and and he had an iphone and i didn't have an iphone and magnetometer was going to cost six hundred dollars and i thought well let's just i learned through youtube that you could turn your mag turn your iphone into a magnetometer yeah so we turned his phone iphone into a magnetometer and he t we tested traps he rode with me trapping and rode with me and we tested 50 or 55 of my traps that i made I made over a hundred different prototypes and um, we, we just, it just surmised that the, that's what it was, but he was there to verify that, that that's, that's what it was. I mean, we, we, I just had too many instances where it, too many ways to prove that it was that way. So you had, you were testing it, at first you thought it was the openness of the traps. Was there anything right. else that you considered uh, aside from that? Well, the, the way the trigger worked, I thought was, was make it more open and would be less likely for the animal to uh, um, uh, avoid it. Um, one of the things that really got me going, I knew what it was, but I had built a, a side door trap that the animal comes in from the side, it was, it was slanted. And I'd, I'd taken it out and tested it and I caught animals every day. In fact, I caught so many animals, I caught more animals than trap nights over about a 25 day period of time. And um, I thought, boy, this is really some kind of trap, you know? So then I uh, was testing it more and I changed the trigger system out to where it was the same mechanism, but I had a pan type trigger, but I didn't pay any attention to it. I just went to some more locations and I couldn't catch the animals in the trap. I, I mean, I catch one every once in a while, but I wasn't catching them like I was before. I mean, I was, it was they were loading up the trap every day. Anything that come by the trap was going in. And I was outside of my house, sitting on a chair, trying to figure out what was taking place. And I was running my tests. And I got to thinking that the side door trap, one of them, I had two of them sitting there. One of them had a pan in it and one of them had a wire trigger that they stepped on. And I got to taking my iPhone with a magnetometer and I ran it over the trap with the pan in it. And it went from like 35 or 34 microtesla up to 80 to 90 microtesla. That told me that it was radiating off the pan before the animal got into where the bait, bait was, the food was. So I checked the other trap 
and where the wire trigger was, you put grass over it, and it camouflages the magnetic field. And uh, I tested it, and it was it continued to get low all the way through the trap. So that told me that the magnetic field was what was causing the difference. And I took the other trap then and put a wire trigger on it, took it out there, and then I caught the animals again. <laughs> it's just it's amazing to me that you thought of that because uh, a lot of modern, you know, a lot of scientists even today aren't fully convinced that uh, mammals are using this uh, magnetic, uh, the sense of magnetic field. But we do know that birds use the magnetic field to, to migrate every year, right? To, to figure out where to go north and south. Yeah, yeah. and what it is, people don't think, they think it's a magnetic field. It is a magnetic field, and I say that in my book. But what it is, it's actually the negative and positive ions that, that are expelled from the material. For instance, um, to give you an example with a foothold trap, in my book I show an example of a, of a, it's actually a Duke trap, which is, I mean, it's a good trap as far as the way it's made and everything, but it's a standard trap, and I show them the reading, it's 260 microtesla. Well, it actually ranged from 260 to 300 microtesla. When you talk to, Duke, Duke makes a 550 and MB, MB makes a 550. Yeah. And when I tested the Duke 550, MB 550, or 550 Duke, it tested the same as an MB 550. But the difference was, I'm telling this, I haven't mentioned this publicly before, but when, when you tested, the, the, they ran about 160 micro Tesla, which is roughly a, a half of what the uh, regular Duke was. So that told me that w the reason the 550, was, whether it be MB or whether it be Duke, was working so well was that it, it em emanated uh, half of what the uh, projected half of what the, the negative positive ions that the uh, standard trap would, would project. So it was actually easier to hide the magnetic field of the trap and like that using those two traps because it has a reduced field. Then I got to even looking at it even closer, and if you look at a, a Duke 550, the pan sits level with the with the with the uh, trap, or, or they this made to where it sits level with the jaws of the trap. Mm -hmm. The MB sits a little lower; it sits about an eighth of an inch to three sixteenths of an inch lower. And when you're testing with a tester, um, uh, a, a magnetometer, it makes all the difference in the world. In other words, the, it's easier to hide the field of an MB 550 than it is a Duke 550. Because of the uh, because of, because of that, the way the trap's made. Also, the, the trap edges and the way the trap is made, the 550 MB is just a better trap. It wouldn't take but one more animal to pay for another dozen MBs, even though they're more expensive. Yeah. That dif difference is, is, is minuscule compared to the results you'll get from the trap. So, so what are some factors that we should think of? I mean, so all, everybody uh, after this episode is going to know most phones have a magnetometer built. Most smartphones have it built in. Mine actually doesn't, but mo most do. And you can download an easy app to measure this stuff. Um, That's right. What are the things that the properties of the metal or the traps that we're using that will affect that magnetic field in your experience? the amount of carbon content in it. Like for instance, to give you an example, if I've got some old Duke uh, 330 conveyor traps, and I've got some old BMI and Victor conveyor traps. 
the old Duke, not all of them will have a low reading going through the trap because the metals aren't as good, depending on whether they were made in China at the time or made in Korea or the type of steel that was used. Now, not all, all not all Dukes have um, have a, a low field going through the trap that radiates off the ends of the trap like that. And uh, it, it has a high reading going through the trap, but but not, but not it's the, the older models, ones with the better steel in them, are just the same as a Victor or with a BMI. And by having a magnetometer in your phone where you can test it, you can actually test the trap before you buy it to see whether or not it's going to be a negative going through the trap or not. So you, you, it makes it uh, something that you'd want to read my book to where you understand how to do it so that you can you know, test the trap before you purchase it to make sure it's going to work to the best of its ability. If it's under the water, it doesn't matter. But if, you, if, it, if it's sticking up above the water four or five inches or so, it's gonna make all the difference in the world. Now, is do, do you think there's a difference between an animal have, walking through a trap, a snare, or a conibear, as opposed to st stepping into a foothold trap? It's easier to hide the field with a foothold. Yeah. A snare in my book is I explain how you, the diameter of the snare, the material the snare is made, and how big a loop it is, um, makes a big difference. Makes all the difference in the world, and how it's attached. Uh, and what it's attached to. Uh, I don't go into detail in my book. I basically give the basics, but you can take the basics and test your test your uh, set and know which set is a better set just by using your iPhone like that. Once you figure out what's the best set, what most of the trappers are doing is they're looking at um, people like Zagman and, and, and uh, Mark Zagger. Zagger, yeah. Yeah, and, and doing what he's doing, which is essentially what he's doing is, is what you're supposed to do to reduce the magnetic field of the trap. You, mean, the, you mean in the way he digs his trap bed? And, the way he makes his trap bed and yep. the way he sets it. it that's, that's correct. And uses the grass clippings and stuff over the top. Yeah, and how, how he sets it in there and the, the, using the salt and the water, how he positions the trap into the, the uh, for instance, like I told you on the cage trap that I have, with a slanted, uh, the wire trigger, you lay grass clippings over the top of the wire and it reduces the field over. So the animal's not afraid to step on the, or to come further into the trap to step on the trigger to get caught. It's the same principle that Zagger uses. It, any, any trapper that's catching a large amount of animals, if he, you do the same thing that he does, you're essentially, he's just doing what can be proved by the magnetometer of the phone. And that's the funny thing is, is you are, you, you mentioned people that are figuring things out that, wow, I, I do better this way. I, uh, catching th this particular method catches more animals, but I really don't know why. And in a lot of cases, this may be exactly the reason. A lot, a lot of things like, for instance, um, everybody talks about how they don't use, uh, they don't necessarily boil the traps and wax their traps like they did. Well, the traps are made differently than what they were. The materials that they use to make them are, are different. And what it amounts to is, is if by waxing the trap or painting the trap, it causes the, the meeting positive ions to um, only uh, make the outside of the trap stink, that it's connected where, where the outside of the trap goes to the dirt or goes to the ground or whatever. If you, it, it, they can still feel the radiation of that, it, but it cuts down on the stink. It only, it only makes the, the contact with the metal to whatever it 
it touches it doesn't the rust smell doesn't come out through the trap as much it's just the radiation from the trap will cause the animal to pot or to dig it up um, you can have a trap that has no magnetic field which is fine the trouble is is though as you find with whether it be a snare or whether especially with a cage trap is that you want it to have a negative reading because it causes a calming effect that actually entices the animal to go in the, in the trap. And, and when you say negative, you mean is that like in relation to the Earth's magnetic field? That's right. If your magnetic field is, say, 46 or 47 like it is here, you want it to go down as it goes inside the trap. You want it to go down. I got some traps that goes as low as 12 or 15 microtesla. It reduces as much as three or four times. Wow, that's that's amazing. So... So you've uh, now that now that you've uh, you learned this, that must have uh, really changed the way you did a lot of things. Oh yeah, changed uh, certain models of traps that I made were just it made them. Uh, I, I as, uh, what I found was is I made more traps. I, I essentially made more traps that worked with the magnetic field like it should, and I eliminated one of the first traps I made didn't have that ability. Not all of them. Some of them did. Uh, one of the things that you can tell if you're a novice or whatever, you don't know anything about magnetic fields, or you want to prove that it works, if you you go on Trapper Talk or you go on any Trapper Man or whatever, and you talk to these guys that are catching coyotes in cage traps. What they're using is big traps, and the reason they're using big traps is because the animals are going in them, but the reason they're going in them is because the bigger trap has a frame and if the frame is made properly, it's going to have a reduced field because of the way the frame is made. A trap that has a very minimal frame doesn't have, most of the time, doesn't have a reduced field. And you're catching coon and, and animals that don't pay attention, possums and like that, that don't pay attention to a magnetic field. Most of the nuisance trappers are catching them out of homes or areas that have a lot of steel and metal. It's going to have a high radiated field, but the animal doesn't pay that much attention to it because it's something that's in its environment anyway. Yeah. So, oh. are there any uh, generalizations by species whether one species tends to pay attention more attention to the magnetic field than others? Absolutely. The uh, coyote is the most he can he can pick out the he's the most sensitive. The uh, next one would be probably a, an otter, and a beaver, um, a red fox. Um, they they all have have a cryptochrome, which is a molecule in their system some are, some breeds actually because of the way the breed is uh, is more susceptible to being able to detect the uh, uh, like a breed of a dog is more able to have the ability to detect the magnetic field or the positive ions that are radiating from the trap more so than another animal that may be a dog but it may be something like a beagle or something this uh, they just don't pay attention to things so you brought this up. You mentioned bringing this up in your book to some professors. Uh, what, what was the reaction that you got? I know I, I called the uh, professor at the Statesboro. He was the head of the engineering department. And he told me that the animal couldn't detect the magnetic field of a cage trap. It was just too low of a reading. Um, I talked to a guy in, uh, who was a leading professor out of the University of Florida and also Florida State, but the University of Florida. And he was positive about it, but he said he didn't know enough to really give me a good answer. He couldn't, couldn't really prove it or whatever. 
Um, the, the only way I'm able to prove it is I had a number of traps. Bukas of traps that I made, a number of traps that I made that had the positive reading on the, it did it with a cage trap. I, I didn't know how to correlate a cage trap with a foothold or a snare until I got to thinking about how, how it all works. Pretty amazing stuff. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed that, get you thinking a little bit and maybe trying to test some of that out on your own. We get a little bit more with Kirk. I don't know when I'm going to air the rest of the interview. It'd probably be a few weeks from now. But, uh, yeah, I, I was glad to uh, to get in touch with him and chat about this and, and hopefully increase our understanding as trappers of all the different factors that might be affecting our uh, our success. So with that, guys, let's get into the Cots Bros message of the week. Cots Bros are aggressively buying glands, skunk essence, and beaver caster. And they are paying a premium for large quantities of fox and bobcat glands. Visit cotsbros.com, go down to the About tab and click on the blog, and you'll see that uh, as I record this, the top post is Glands Essence Caster and Carcasses Wanted, and they've got an update there from February 2021 with prices. So check them out, cotsbros.com. Thanks, Cotsbros. Thank you guys for listening in. Till next time, keep on talking trapping, keep on thinking trapping. We'll catch you on the next episode.